All right, morning, everybody. Morning, Michael. <laughs> uh, good to be together uh, on this Sunday. It is the beginning of spring break week, uh, but I'm grateful for all of you making it out here uh, to be with us today. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and if we haven't had a chance to meet, hopefully we have a chance to meet uh, at some point this morning uh, before our gathering is done. If you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 12, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and someone on our team will come around and make sure that you have uh, one of those. Raise your hand if you need one. As you're finding that, want to uh, sort of remind us of where we are, create some context for our conversation uh, this morning, we are in the midst of a long journey through the Gospel of Matthew, 40 weeks in the story of Jesus as told to us by Matthew, one of Jesus' first followers. And we've been looking at this, or we are looking at this, in seven parts or movements. And we're currently in the fourth movement, and this happens to be the shortest movement, just four weeks long, but probably the most intense until we get to the very end of the story. So we are calling this particular section in Matthew, Kingdoms in Conflict. And what we see in, in each of these four weeks are these, uh, again, relatively intense scenes of Jesus interacting with, with people who are starting to realize that what he is up to is different than what their expectations are. And so we're beginning to see this divergence of kingdoms, and Jesus begins to really draw some very clear lines. He says things like, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, this real clear deviation between his kingdom and other kingdoms. In particular, we've seen that Jesus has very little patience for those who would get in the way of his mission, uh, especially the religious leadership of Judaism at that time. These are the, the, the two groups, parties, that are butting heads significantly. To these folks, to this leadership, it appears to them that Jesus is playing fast and loose with the rules. It appears that Jesus has no respect for the tradition that has been handed down to them. It just feels like he's kind of wiping the whole thing away. And to Jesus, it, it seems as if they're completely missing the point of who he is and why he came. And so we have kingdoms in conflict. Today is the second part of Four weeks of this, all right? So that's a little bit of framing where we are as we head into Matthew chapter 12. Let's pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll get into what happens next. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, as always, for the gift of a new day, the gift of a new week, and for this moment here on Sunday morning where we are able to gather together to... Spend time with one another, get to know new friends, connect with old friends, to worship, to hear from your word, to pause in the midst of the busyness of our life, and to be still so that we have a sense, a greater sense of your movement and leadership and speaking into our lives. Would you challenge us this morning? Would you convict us this morning? Church, so much more than just an event on Sunday morning, it is who we are called to be. And so with this conversation frame and continue to speak into the kind of people, the kind of community that you desire for us to be. May we be a group of people who are submitted to King Jesus, 
who say no to other kingdoms, other systems, other programs that might be available to us so that we can say yes wholeheartedly to Jesus and his kingdom. We pray all of this this morning in the name of King Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, well, to begin... Our conversation today, I'm actually, we're going to start with a, a, a clip. This is from a movie that you're probably familiar with, especially if you have kids, you've undoubtedly had to watch this or had the privilege of watching it. Um, but turn your attention to the screen with me for a minute as we watch this clip from The Incredibles. Denied? You're denying my claim? Oh, I don't understand. I have full coverage. I'm sorry, Mrs. Hoganson, but our liability is spelled out in paragraph 17. It states clearly. I can't pay for this. Excuse me. Claims, Bob Parr. Excuse me. Where were we? I'm on a fixed income. And if you can't help me, I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> Listen closely. I'd like to help you, but I can't. I'd like to tell you to take a copy of your policy to Norma Wilcox on Norma Wilcox, W-I-L-C-O-X, on the third floor, but I can't. I also do not advise you to fill out and file a WS-2475 form with our legal department on the second floor. I would not expect someone to get back to you quickly to resolve the matter. I'd like to help. But there's nothing I can do. Oh, thank you, Shh. Ma'am. I'm sorry, ma'am. I know you're upset. Pretend to be upset. <laughs> Denied. <laughs> all right. We begin here because, for, for one, we've all had this experience, right, of, of sort of the red tape and bureaucracy of customer service. We also begin here because this scene, to me, represents so well the never-ending human debate between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. When I was in college, a group of friends and I, we went to uh, hike Mount Diablo one, one time at night. We wanted to see the moon, kind of like the, the super moon that we had this week. And, and so we do the hike, and then we get in my car, and I'm driving everyone home. And it's, again, the middle of the night, you know, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. And we get to this intersection out in the middle of nowhere. It's totally flat. You can see for miles in all directions. And the light is red. And so I do that thing where you kind of pull up to the light. But then I, you know, I check both ways and I just go right through that red light. And the, my friend in the back seat was, was just like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. How could you run this red light? And it set off, again, this great old philosophical argument about spirit of the law versus letter of the law. My take on it was this. Safety lights are there to regulate the flow of traffic, and when there is no traffic to regulate, you don't need to abide, abide by the red light. Spirit of the law. Okay? My friend, though, being a letter of the law type, argued, you know, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a red light. You stop at a red light. You go at a green light. That's just how it works. Now, the irony of this story, and I wish I had time to tell you the whole thing because it's kind of a crazy story. But the irony of this story is this. We get back to campus. I went to school at the University of the Pacific in Stockton. And there's this one stretch on campus. I don't know if it even exists anymore, but back in the day, there was this one stretch of four stop signs in like 500 yards. It was just the most ridiculous set of stop signs that you had to go through. And so I drop everyone off. I'm alone in my car. And I get to this stretch, and I just drive right through the whole thing. I'm a spirit of the law guy, okay? And as soon as I get through the fourth one, of course, lights start flashing, and I get pulled over. And I'm like, this is great. I have this wonderful opportunity to test my philosophy now 
on the police officer. And, and so I give him this whole speech about uh, the spirit of the law, and these are here to regulate traffic, and there's no traffic, so there's no need to regulate it, and he did not buy it. Not a spirit of the law type of guy. <laughs> now, keeping that in mind, let's turn again to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read for us the first 10 or so verses, and uh, we'll see how this shows, uh, shows up here in this conversation that Jesus has again with the religious authorities of the day. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some uh, heads of grain and to eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or, haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? We'll pause there for a moment and come back to what happens next in just a second. But we begin here with Jesus and his disciples on the move. They're going from one place to another, and they are hungry, so they begin to pluck some grain from this field as they pass by. Now, this might seem like a weird thing to us. We don't go to the grocery store and rip into a bag of cookies or, or, or grapes or whatever it is. Maybe you do. Uh, I don't know, but you're not really supposed to do that kind of thing in our grocery stores, right? But this was a, a customary practice for them. There was nothing against uh, what they were doing in terms of the picking of the grain, all right? Deuteronomy 23 says, If you enter your neighbor's grain fields, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So in other words, you can kind of help yourself. You can't uh, harvest the whole field and call it your own, but if you're passing by and you're hungry, you can uh, satisfy that hunger in your neighbor's grain field. So the issue here at first anyway, is not about the picking of the grain. The issue is the timing. It's the Sabbath. Now for the Jews, this was their holy day of rest. It was a day that was set apart from all of the other days uh, for worship, to cease from working. And as the Pharisees point out in verse 2, it's against the law to pick grain on the Sabbath. Now real quick aside here, this is one of those uh, scenes in Scripture that to me, is a little bit humorous. Like, what are the Pharisees doing? Are they hiding out in the grain field? Are they, like, behind some bushes somewhere? Are they sort of uh, creepily following Jesus with, like, masks on? I mean, how do they know that this thing is happening in the moment? They just, like, pop out of nowhere. What are you doing picking grain on the Sabbath? However it is that they got there, they have an issue with this. And, and again, it's important for us to remember this is not... Uh, in a vacuum here, right? This has been building for several chapters, several weeks. Jesus has demonstrated in a number of different ways that he has a different handle, a different approach to the law and to their rules. 
And so you get the sense that they have, in whatever way, been tracking him, looking for an opportunity to get into it. So here, here we go, picking green on the Sabbath. Again, Sabbath, not just a day off from work, not just a nice little Saturday to go to Home Depot and, and run errands or do whatever you need to do. This was a, a significant practice for them. It was one of the ways that they saw themselves being distinct from other people. Sabbath practice deeply ingrained into their identity. Sabbath was tied to the creation story, Genesis chapter 2. When God finishes creation, he rests. It was also tied into the Exodus story. After 400 years in slavery, God, God frees them from making bricks. They worked every single day making bricks for the Egyptian empire. God frees them from slavery. And after freeing them in this sort of foundational document, if you will, called the Ten Commandments, he tells them, set this day aside, keep it holy. You are not slaves anymore. You are free people. So again, this is not just another ritual amongst a bunch of rituals. Sabbath was so central to who they were. It's what made them them. And because it was so important, they took it very seriously. And they put a lot of time and energy into trying to do it right. And so they created lists and definitions about what was rest and what was work, how to do this thing the right way. And at some level, I think there were good intentions that went into this. We've talked before about the Pharisees, how their hope was in a coming Messiah and how they believed that if they were just good enough, if they were just pure enough, the Messiah would come, would lead them again to freedom from their oppression, uh, this time under the Roman Empire. And so for them, Sabbath was a, a critical way that they defined purity. Are we doing this right? Are we protecting this day? It was a defining line for them. Now, Jesus' response to them is so interesting. He, uh, in a very pointed way, begins by going after their knowledge of their own history and of Scripture. Haven't you read? Don't you know the story of David? David was considered the greatest king in their history. He's this massive figure in the Old Testament, this massive figure in the minds and imaginations of the Jews. This is like saying, don't you know? Abraham Lincoln, like, of all the presidents, this is the one you should know. Jesus here is referring to a scene in 1 Samuel 21. David was not yet king at this point in the story. He's leading a group of warriors on a mission, and they've run out of food. So he's going in search of a way to feed his men, and he finds this priest. And he asks the priest if, they, uh, if he has any food to share. And the priest says, I do, but I only have what was called the showbread. Showbread was these 12 loaves of bread that were set aside, a, a symbolic part of their worship service, representing Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, how they were set aside and, and kept holy. And, and the only people who were allowed to eat this were the priests, and they could only eat it after the bread had been used in worship. And so here in this scene, you have a priest calling an audible, spirit of the law guy, using this bread to feed David and these hungry soldiers. So that's example number one. 
Example number two, haven't you read in the law, priests work on holy days, priests work on the Sabbath. God gives them a break. He, they are innocent. They have not violated the Sabbath law. Now at this point, as Jesus is giving these couple of examples, the Pharisees probably thinking a couple of different things. One, good story, Jesus, but the David thing doesn't really have to do with the Sabbath. And then two, some audacity you have comparing yourself to David and his men, comparing yourself to priests. These are important holy figures, and I don't think they're seeing Jesus kind of on the same level. And so you get the sense there at the end of verse 5, beginning of verse 6, Jesus might feel these objections coming, and so here's where he really goes for it. He cites a couple of, of Old Testament loophole stories, and then he just really lets them have it. Something greater than the temple is here. And he closes his argument by saying, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is an incredibly provocative set of statements. Temple was another big identity marker for Israel. Jesus is cutting right through two of their most sacred identifiers, their flag, their White House, their constitution, the temple and the Sabbath. I am greater than these things. Now back to the opening question for, for just a second. Haven't you read? Haven't you read in the law? Of course they had read these things. Of course they knew these things. In fact, Pharisees would have memorized the entire Old Testament. They could have quoted this back to Jesus chapter and verse. This is like asking Kevin Durant, if he knows how many points he scored last night, of course he knows how many points he scored. The problem here is not knowledge. Okay, the Pharisees know this stuff inside and out. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is interpretation. Now within all this, this is the second time we've seen Jesus quote a particular Old Testament verse, Hosea 6 Six, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This came up a, a couple weeks ago. Jesus was uh, eating and partying with notorious sinners and tax collectors. He used the same verse in reference to this. As Jesus pushes on some of their boundaries and markers, he keeps coming back to this idea of mercy over sacrifice. The Pharisees interpreted the Sabbath law through the lens of sacrifice. What do I need to do? What do I need to give up? What's the system? What's the program so that I can perfectly follow the rules? So that I can be doing this the right way? For them, the proper approach to Sabbath determined, of course, by Scripture, but they interpret it through systems, programs, traditions, this long-running list of what was acceptable and unacceptable to do on a Sabbath. Jesus, however, interpreting the law through the lens of mercy. And in particular, this question, what is actually good for people? Look at what happens next. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. 
And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Now let's work backwards here for a moment. This scene culminates with Jesus healing this man with a shriveled hand. We've seen him do this a a couple of times already where he gets into a conversation, he's making a point, and then a miracle or a healing kind of serves as uh, as the proof of the point that Jesus is trying to make. Why do I have authority to, to reset the rules for Sabbath? Why do I have authority to heal and to pick grain and to do all of these things? It's because I am God. I am God with you, the Son of Man, and I am powerful. And here's the proof. And he tells this man to stretch out his hand, and he does, and the hand is completely restored. Now, before that, Jesus uses an analogy to, again, drive home the lens of interpretation that he is using. If you have a sheep and it is in trouble, even on a Sabbath, you're going to save it. Sheep were valuable economic commodities in that culture, and Jesus is making the point, how much more valuable is a person? The lens of interpretation is, is it good for people? Is this good news for human beings? Is it good news to turn someone away who's in need of healing just because it's the wrong day? No, of course not. Is it good news to turn away someone who is hungry in order to keep a few loaves of bread consecrated? No, of course not. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, one of the reasons that Incredibles clip resonates with us is, again, we've all had this experience, right, of, of red tape and bureaucracy, and you, you call up, you know, whoever you need to get in touch with, and they send you to the next person, and you have to jump through eight hoops and answer the same set of questions every single time. Getting on the phone with customer service with Comcast or AT&T, not good news for people, right? This question is so important for us as we grow as a church in understanding our calling to help people discover the good news of Jesus. We must always be asking the evaluative question, is this good news for people? If it is gospel, it will be the best news possible for humanity. And so we ask questions like, do our gatherings, do our practices, do, uh, does the culture of our church, do our rhythms and values lead people from rigid systems and anxiety-driven performance and endless achievements? If you were with us last Sunday, this is Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30 language, right? This yoke. Does it lead us from a heavy yoke towards Jesus' gentle yoke? Does it lead us towards mercy and grace and freedom and peace? Is it good news for people? Now, I don't actually think that the Pharisees were against this man's hand being healed. I think in their minds, you know, just come back tomorrow when it's Monday and we can take care of it then. For them, the system created a barrier to, what, to seeing and participating in what Jesus was all about. The system created a barrier, and they could not get past it. They just couldn't get past it. 
to be able to see what Jesus was up to, to be able to accept their place in his kingdom. Instead, they see Jesus threatening everything that they stand on. He's subverting their authority. I am the son of God. He's undermining their identity. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm greater than the temple. And so not only do they dismiss Jesus or even reject Jesus as king, they begin to look for ways to destroy him. Verse 14, kingdoms in conflict. Jesus' initial response to this is to move on to another place. Can't escape the crowds, however. They keep coming to him looking for healing. They're experiencing so much good news in Jesus. They cannot be turned away. But now he tells them, even though he's healing them and meeting their needs, he tells them, please keep this on the DL, right? Keep this a secret. Now, it might seem like he's operating from a place of fear, running away from this conflict, but Matthew wants us to see that, no, Jesus is very much sticking to the plan. This is a fulfillment of part of this old story, the words of Isaiah. What this shows us is that Jesus is not interested in being provocative for the sake of being provocative. He's interested in his mission moving forward, shalom being restored, right relationship, justice renewed throughout the world. Here are the words of Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name the nations will put their hope. So Matthew connects this move, again, to these ancient words from the prophet Isaiah. And what these words do is they call us back to an earlier scene in Matthew and they call us forward to the culmination of this story. That call back is to Jesus' baptism. Those first couple uh, verses there happened when Jesus was baptized, Matthew chapter 3. They also call us forward. This conflict between kingdoms will be resolved by Jesus allowing himself to be bruised, broken, and snuffed out in order to bring justice. In order to bring right relationship between us and God and between each other. Through his death and resurrection. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope for now in this life here, but also into the future, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is the best news possible for human beings. Now again, the conflict between these kingdoms in this scene is partially about Sabbath, but there's a thing behind the thing, right? And it's not about knowledge, it's about interpretation. And this is so interesting to me because this issue of interpretation, it just continues to be a massive issue, a massive conversation in our world to this very day. What is the difference between real news and fake news? What does justice look like in an unfair society? 
And it's a conversation within church. How do we handle scripture? How do we interpret this ancient book in the 21st century in the West, living in an economic and military superpower? How do we discern and interpret? Now, some of this I've shared before, but it's worth mentioning for us again. We're going to talk about three orthos, and some of these words are kind of loaded. I, I, I want to acknowledge that on the front end. Um, so I want to make sure that we're on the same page here. We're not talking necessarily about kind of high-level theology. This is more about practical applications of these ideas. So three orthos, ortho, a Greek root meaning right or correct. The first is orthodoxy. Translated literally, this means right or correct belief, opinion, or idea. And there are some circles where this becomes uh, the animating principle. Again, we want to be orthodox. We want to swim in the stream of orthodox belief and theology. But there's a big temptation here, and I would call it the temptation towards the perfect system. If everyone just held and signed on to these eight beliefs, these seven doctrinal statements, then all of our problems would be solved. And what often happens here is this leads to great arguments about systems, defending systems, and especially it leads to calling out people who disagree or who might fall outside of the system on one or two of the points. The word heretic gets thrown around a lot. It can become extremely judgmental. And this was the trap that the Pharisees fell into. In other circles, there's a bent towards a different ortho. This is orthopraxy. This literally means right or correct application, process, or action. And again, we want to be doing good things, but the temptation here is to find the perfect model or program. If only we organized church this way, if we did discipleship this way, if we served this population, if we joined this cause, then we would be an effective church. The issue here, though, is that the ground can shift. One thing, the thing that's hot today can become cold tomorrow. And it can become very shallow, even at times disconnected from the truth. Again, a trap the Pharisees fell into. Now there's a third ortho, and I think this is one that has just been vastly ignored by Jesus' followers for too long, and it's orthokresis. This means, again, literally, right or correct judgment or discernment. <clears throat> Theologian Kevin Van Hooser says, orthokresis is a lived knowledge, it is wisdom. If Jesus is who he claims to be, son of man, son of God, God with us, our king, he is our orthokresis. Wisdom. Lived knowledge, an embodied demonstration of what is right and true and just. And so to grow in our ability to orthocrete, that's a, that's a form of the word that I made up for today, okay? In order for us to orthocrete, to exercise right discernment, proper interpretation, we must spend a lot of time with Jesus. This is partly why we're spending 40 weeks in the Gospel 
of Matthew because whatever lies ahead for discovery, it must be grounded in who Jesus is, not in a system of theology, not in a program that we execute to perfection. It must be grounded in who Jesus is. We orthocrete, we discern through Jesus. One practical example, since this passage revolves around Sabbath, let's use this as a case study, a system approach. We would want to get into what are the three things that we must absolutely wholeheartedly believe about Sabbath. And let's parse that out and get the words right and nail that down and then we will, we will find rest. And a performance approach might say, you know, it doesn't really matter what day it is. Here's the four or five things that you need to do on your Sabbath to make sure that it is effective and restful. But I think through the lens of Jesus, orthocreting, we have to ask a couple of different questions. Orthocresis says we have found rest for our souls in Jesus and who he is and what he has done on our behalf. Because of what he has done in his life and death and resurrection, we can find true rest for our souls. And so Sabbath is something that we have access to at any time. That doesn't mean, though, that we don't set apart particular moments for rest. It just means we always have access to this. And so, therefore, it impacts our entire life and it forces us to ask some big questions about our whole life. When we look at our commitments and our calendars, We have to ask the question, does this reflect the rest that we have in Jesus? Does the way that I structure my time produce love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of God's spirit in our life? Does my life, my commitments, my time, my calendar reflect the Jesus who said we will know him because the blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Do we see those things showing up in our life? In our house, we take Mondays off. That's kind of our our day to practice this idea of Sabbath. This last Monday was just an epic fiasco of a day off. Uh, mostly in the afternoon. So I, I do dinner on Mondays, and I was going to barbecue hamburgers, and I had um, formed the patties and set them out um, on the counter, and I was going to do a couple of other things to prep before I took them out to the barbecue, and I was pulling some plates out of the cabinet, and it they fell onto the counter right next to the meat and just shattered, and there's like meat everywhere and, and glass in everything. And so it's like, okay, we've got to start this all over again. So we clean that up. I make a whole bunch of new patties. Um, The grill's been running the whole time. So by the time I get out there and put them on, they cook for a minute, and then the thing runs out of gas. So now I run back into the house. I'm trying to, you know, throw these things on the stovetop. And now all four of us are in this tiny little kitchen, and Amy burns her arm on the oven. And there just was no joy, peace, patience, love, kindness in our home last Monday afternoon. Again, a a systems perspective would say there's something wrong in your beliefs. One of your beliefs is off. A performance perspective would say you're doing it wrong. It's the wrong 
program, but orthocreting through the lens of Jesus has forced me this week to ask the question, in my blindness and lameness in that moment, what was Jesus trying to say to me? I think maybe Jesus was saying to me last Monday, Steve, I am Lord of the Sabbath, not you. I am Lord of the Sabbath, not you. Your hope is not in how great your Mondays are. Your hope is in me. And so are you willing to stretch out your hand and be healed? Thinking about things this way, we have to ask some questions. Have you submitted or substituted a system or a program in place of the person of Jesus? Have you let a system or a program define what is good? Maybe Jesus' most pointed words today are, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good. So for us, as we move forward, may we be a community that first and foremost is submitted to King Jesus. May we be a community that discerns through the lens of Jesus. His kingdom, his mission, is it good news for people? Pray with me. Father, we uh, begin this moment in our gathering by confessing that all too often we are drawn towards a system or a program. We just want to know the four things that we need to believe, the, the five boxes we need to check, the three things that we need to do so that we feel good about uh, what we're doing. And while practices are important and, and, and beliefs and truth is important, God, we want at the very root of all of this to be discerning and interpreting through the lens of Jesus, through who he was, the, the lens of uh, the crucifixion, the God who gave up all of his power and privilege to come to this earth, to walk with us, to be with us, to heal us, to point us to a different way to live, and ultimately to give his life on that cross, in our place, so that we may have life, that we may have relationship again with you. So God, if there are some things that we need to let go of this morning, I I pray that we would have the courage to do that. If we need to take the very simple and straightforward step of just submitting our lives to you, if there's anyone here this morning who needs to do that, God, I pray in this moment they would be doing that, submitting their life and their heart to you as their king. God, we want everything that we do, who we are as a community, as a church, to be fueled, to be driven by by Jesus and his mission, the things that he cares about, so that this community here in Davis is good news for people who desperately need good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.